We're returning to the solemn and sacred scene of Gethsemane as it's recorded for us in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 14. So let me invite you, if you have a copy of the Word of God this morning, to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 14. And as we did last Lord's Day, we'll read verses 32 to 42. Mark 14. And I want to remind you of what has just taken place. It's the night of our Lord's betrayal, and he has spent the evening with his disciples in an upper room in Jerusalem. And they shared a Passover meal there, the Last Supper, so-called Last Supper. And it was at that meal that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. It was also at that meal that he had announced that one would betray them. Having left the upper room and gone out to the Mount of Olives, which was just outside of the city, on the way there, if you look back earlier in Mark 14, we see Jesus speaking to his disciples and predicting that all of them would be made to stumble that night because of Jesus. And then he quotes scripture. He says specifically to Peter, though, that Peter would deny him, which he very strongly denies Would happen. So that's the context of this here that we now come to read, beginning at verse 32 in Mark 14. Then they, that's Jesus and the 11 remaining disciples, Judas has gone off to do his deed. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's have another word of prayer. Our God and Father, gracious God, we ask that you would help us. We feel our weakness, especially as we come before a text like this. And we ask that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to understand things that are ultimately beyond our understanding. That we would love Christ more and that he would be glorified. Lord, that we would learn to watch and pray lest we enter into temptation. Even now, that is our prayer, that you would keep us from temptation. And we pray against the evil one who would want to make this hour unprofitable. As the word is sown, we pray that the enemy would not pluck away the seed, but we we pray that that seed would find good soil, hearts prepared to receive it, and that for your glory there would be much fruit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jesus lived his life with a very clear sense of purpose and of his own unique destiny. Even as a boy, as he was found in the temple by his parents, he himself had said, I must be about my father's business. 
And when the time finally came for him to begin his public ministry around the age of 30, Jesus set aside the carpenter's tools and he went out into the wilderness where John the Baptist was baptizing in the Jordan and he was baptized there in the Jordan. The time had come and he knew it for him to begin his public ministry. And then throughout his public ministry, even up to his death, to these final hours that we've come to in the Gospel of Mark, we see that he acted according to his father's agenda and timetable, and not according to anybody else's. Not even his own mother was able to dictate what he did and when he did it, even though he was subject to his mother. He was ultimately subject to the father. And you remember at Cana, at a wedding, when the wine was all gone, which was a very big deal, and he was told, the wine is all gone, he says, my hour has not yet come. So Jesus was very aware that there was an hour. Even his enemies couldn't touch him before the hour, the appointed hour that the father had appointed. So we see, for example, in John 7.30, that they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So his enemies couldn't even touch him. But when that hour did at last come, Jesus knew that it had arrived and he declared it to be so. And again, we see this in Mark, or sorry, in the Gospel of John. Very clearly, he says, the hour has come that the Son of Man, speaking of himself, should be glorified. And he means glorified through suffering and through death. He announces this in John 12, the hour's come. And then he goes on to say later in John 12, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So he knew the hour had come, and he didn't shrink back from the hour. And it's with this sense of destiny and of purpose, and the knowledge of the time that had come that Jesus left the upper room there in Jerusalem and went out to the Mount of Olives. And as Mark records here in our text, came to a place which was named Gethsemane. Now there's significance in that because when we read that Jesus came to this place named Gethsemane, we are reading that Jesus was coming to lay down his life because we are told elsewhere that Jesus and his disciples often went here. John 18, 2. Judas knew this place. So this was the likely place that his betrayer would find him to betray him. So Jesus isn't going into hiding. In this little detail that he went to this place, we read that he's laying down his life. He knows the time has come. At the end of our text, Jesus says, the hour has come. There in verse 41, the hour has come. So Gethsemane was the hour before the hour. And that's the title of my sermon this morning, the hour before the hour. The hour of prayer in the garden, the hour of watching and praying. And it was probably longer than an hour, but look at verse 37. When Jesus comes to Peter, he says, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? So this is the hour before the hour that had come. Now this hour, as we think about it, the hour in Gethsemane of prayer and of watching it was really just as critical as the hour that came upon Jesus when he was taken and then would soon be taken to the cross. And that hour, Jesus triumphs. In this hour, Jesus rises and he's ready to meet the coming trial and to prevail. So in a very real sense, the victory is already won here in Gethsemane. But the disciples fail in this hour. And so they also fail in the hour to come, the hour of testing that Jesus had warned them about. 
So this morning, what I want to do is consider side by side the disciples, especially the three, Peter, James, and John, compare the disciples side by side with Jesus in the hour before the appointed hour. And we have here much to learn about ourselves and about our Lord. So firstly, let's consider the disciples in this hour before the hour. The disciples here in the garden. Let me just remind you before entering the garden, Jesus had said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. That's Mark 14, 27. All of you without exception, says Jesus, will be made to stumble and fall into sin because of me this night. And you know that Peter protested this. He said that it wouldn't happen. He strongly asserted even as Jesus said to him, Peter, not only will you stumble, you will deny me three times. He more vehemently said, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Verse 31 of chapter 14. And then the little detail that they all said likewise. That's significant. Jesus said, you'll all stumble. But they all were joining Peter and very confidently saying, Jesus, we would never do that. We will not stumble. We will not deny you. That's the immediate context here. And then we go to the garden. So it's with these confident words that we come to Gethsemane, here with Jesus and the 11 remaining disciples. They come to this olive orchard, it probably was, an olive orchard that was there on the western slope of the Mount of Olives. And look at the scene here. So here's Jesus coming into this garden, Gethsemane. And we see that immediately he leaves eight of them near the entrance of the garden. You see that in verse 32. He says, sit here while I pray. He says that to eight of them and then takes along only three of them. And this is the same three who alone witness Jesus raising a little girl back in chapter 5. And also the three who alone went on the Mount of Transfiguration and witnessed Jesus' transfiguration. So it's again these three, Peter, James, and John, that Jesus takes aside or takes along with him in a special way as he goes further into the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's these three who alone observe something in their master that they had never quite seen before, and which was no doubt very troubling because Jesus began to be very agitated, I would say even visibly so, and of course he says with his own lips that he is troubled. So look again at verse 33. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. We looked at that last time and just how strong that language is. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. So he leaves them as well. He left the eight there at the beginning and said, sit here. He takes along these three and he says, now you all stay here and watch. And then he goes on just a little bit further, says Mark. If you read in Luke, it says it's a stone's throw away. So this would have been within earshot. They likely would have heard some of the prayer that Jesus had. But Jesus goes on further into the garden as he's agonizing here to have a time of private communion and prayer with the Father, though probably in the hearing of these three disciples. Some would say that Jesus here desired the support of his closest companions at this time. And that might be the case. But we simply cannot prove from the text that Jesus brought these three along for the purpose of giving him support at this time. Whatever the case might be, he did not find support in these three disciples, but in his father. And we read in Luke that an angel came and strengthened him. But not these three disciples. That's not what we find here. In his agonizing hour, in his greatest need, we find them sleeping. You know the account well. Three times Jesus prayed. 
and three times he returned to his disciples and found them not watching, but sleeping. So the first time is recorded there in verse 37. After we have the record of what Jesus was praying, we read in verse 37, then he came and he found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? It's interesting, he addresses Peter specifically. They're all sleeping, but he looks at Peter and speaks these words specifically to him, the one who had just so vehemently declared that he would not stumble and would not deny Jesus. In fact, that he would die with Jesus, cannot even watch one hour. And the original is a little bit stronger, I think, because it's not just were you not able, but he says, did you not have the strength to watch even one hour. That's the first time. Second time we see in verses 39 and 40, where we read again, he went away and prayed and he spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again for their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to answer him. They had nothing to say. They were silenced and no doubt ashamed at this point. Now, we all know what heavy eyes are like. That's very descriptive. We know how hard it is to resist heavy eyes, and maybe your eyes right now are even heavy, and I would say don't get any ideas from this text. <laughs> Stay alert. Stay watchful. The third time is in verse 41. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Now the contrast then between Jesus and the three disciples here in the garden in the hour before the hour could not be more stark, could not be greater. And I would say that it's easy to beat up on the disciples. It'd be very easy for me up here to beat up on them and on Peter especially, and maybe to make ourselves feel a little bit superior, a little bit better. But if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we're looking into a mirror as we come to this text and as we see the disciples in their weakness and in their failure here in the garden. We see in them our own weakness. We see in them our own spiritual lethargy and dullness and so we stand here to learn much from this, especially from the words of Jesus spoken to them at this critical time. You don't need me to tell you that life is hard. Life in this world, in this fallen world, is hard. Trials come upon us, and they come upon us often not in our great times of strength. When we're really strong and we feel, I'm able to endure something, do they not often come in our weakness, in our times of exhaustion? Well, that's the case here with these disciples. It's been a long and eventful week. It's so-called Passion Week, beginning with the triumphal entry. It's been a long week. It's been eventful. They've been coming in and out of the city of Jerusalem. There's been all of that conflict, the rising conflict between Jesus and the religious authorities. All of this has been very draining. As you know, conflict is very draining. But they've been traveling on foot. They've been doing a lot this week. And Jesus, too, has been telling them things that have caused great grief to them. He's been announcing to them what must take place, and it's left them troubled in heart and sorrowful. So they're further drained by this emotional toll that has been taken, as Jesus is saying, even that one of them would betray him. So that's why Luke in Luke 22 says that he found them sleeping from sorrow. They were wearied by sorrow as well, not just an eventful week, not just the fact that it's late, it is late. Not just the fact that they had eaten a fairly substantial meal there in the upper room. All of these things would have worked against them being alert. So as we consider this here, as we think about the disciples, 
and the words of Jesus spoken to them, we need to understand and appreciate the position that they are in. They're in a position of weakness and exhaustion. And the trial comes upon them in that state when they are already low. So we see that the demand of the hour here is very great. So all of that to say, we ought not to beat up on them too much, but to see here, what can we learn about ourselves? Now, turning to Jesus' words, I want us just to consider two statements, and they're highly instructive statements. And you first have the command. The command here, watch and pray, or be watching and praying, lest you enter into temptation. That's in verse 38, the first part of verse 38. We and the disciples have heard similar language before, back in chapter 13. In chapter 13, that was the Olivet Discourse, and in particular, in chapter 13, verses 32 to 37, we find this language as Jesus is speaking about another hour that will come, the day and the hour he says nobody knows. And that's not the hour of this test that is going to come upon them when Jesus is taken by lawless hands. But there he's speaking about the hour of his return. And when he says to them, nobody knows the day or hour that the Son of Man is going to return, the second coming, he says, because of that, watch and pray. Be watchful. Be spiritually alert. Stay awake. Don't be caught sleeping when the Lord returns. So we've seen this before. Similar language has been spoken, but here it's in a different context. But the idea is very much the same, to be alert, to be wakeful, not to be caught sleeping. Now, in the garden here, as the hour approaches for the shepherd to be stricken, for the shepherd to be taken by lawless hands and crucified, Jesus commands them, and we could almost say that he warns them to be watchful, to be alert, to be vigilant. This is no time to sleep, Jesus is saying to them. But what does Jesus mean? Watch and pray. What does that mean? Is he just simply saying, be on the lookout while I pray? Watch out for Judas and his gang so that I can go here and pray and you let me know when they come. Is that what he's talking about? I think there's more to it than that. It's clearly not what he's saying because as you look at all of this, the fact that he's joining this watchfulness to prayer and that this watchfulness and prayer which are joined together are all for the purpose that they might not enter into temptation. When you take this whole picture, clearly Jesus is speaking about a spiritual watchfulness and vigilance that they are to have in this critical hour. They need to be watchful. They need to be praying if they are going to stand and not fall in this coming trial. Lest you enter temptation, says Jesus. And the idea is enter it and fall. Lest you fail the test, Jesus says, be watchful and be prayerful. Lest you be overcome by the evil one. Lest you be caught as in a trap. Lest you fall into sin, he says, be watching and praying. So what we find here is this call to watchfulness is a call to be spiritually alert rather than dull and spiritually sluggish. And for the disciples, that meant at least an awareness of their weakness at this particular time, an awareness of their danger, not just their physical danger, it was that, but especially an awareness of their spiritual danger at this time and an awareness of the challenges that lay before them in the coming hours and in the coming days. There's a great test coming for them, the greatest test of their lives. It will very soon come upon them. It's not at all surprising then that this wakefulness is to be joined with prayerfulness. They go together. They go together for the disciples and they go together for us, watch and pray. Watch and pray, that's a word for us. Because failure to watch is a failure to pray. 
And watching without praying, what is that but to rely on our own strength in the hour of temptation? And relying upon our own strength, that's a sure recipe for entering temptation and falling to that temptation. So for the disciples, this hour in Gethsemane, which was before the hour that would come upon Jesus and even upon them, the hour of trial, this hour in Gethsemane, was absolutely critical. If they were to withstand the coming trial, and to put it in Paul's words in Ephesians 6, as he's speaking about spiritual warfare, because that's what this is, if they were to stand or to withstand in the evil day, they must presently be watching and praying. And their failure to do so left them unprepared, totally unprepared for the hour And what Jesus said, sadly, tragically, came true. So what we find here, and this is something that I want us to understand, is that the battle was really already lost here in Gethsemane for the disciples. They came into it with self-confidence. You might say the battle's already lost there because they're not looking to God for strength. They're saying, I would never do that. And then their failure to watch and to pray. So the battle's lost before the enemy ever shot his fiery darts at them. Now, I think the lesson for us is clear. If we would not enter temptation and succumb to that temptation, we need to be doing the same thing. Jesus says to us as well, be watching and praying lest you enter into temptation. We need to be spiritually alert. We need to often be coming before the throne of grace where we find grace to help us in our time of need. And that includes, of course, our times of testing and of temptation. We find grace so that we do not fall. That's the word for us. There are special times when this is especially true, as with the disciples in the garden. Jesus could have spoken these words really at any time to them, but they have a special weight here because of the trial that is just before them, minutes before them. So he says, in this special time, be watching and praying. That's true for us. There are special seasons in our lives in which we especially need to be watching and to be praying lest we enter into temptations. And we are wise to recognize such times. I'll give a few examples, times of adversity. Whatever that adversity might be, times of adversity are times when we need to be especially watching and praying lest we enter temptation. On the other side of that, times of prosperity. Even as we heard about the temptations of having riches and seeking after riches this morning in the Sunday school. And how we can be led astray from the Lord because of that, by greediness and so forth. In times of prosperity, whatever that prosperity might be, it might be financial, it might be material, or it might not be. But those are times especially when we need to be watching and praying. What about times of busyness and distraction? I think most of us, if I would ask you, say, how you doing? At some point, I think a lot of you would say, I'm busy. I'm stressed, I have a lot going on, I'm distracted. Those are the seasons of life when we especially need to be watching and praying lest we enter into temptations. Times of spiritual duty, even coming here on the Lord's Day, are times where we need to be especially watchful and prayerful. You know, the enemy doesn't want you to come here prepared, doesn't want you to really sing the praises of God, doesn't want you to hear the word with profit, doesn't want you to have good fellowship with your brothers and sisters, doesn't want you to speak kind words to one another and bear each other's burdens and pray for each other and be all the things that we are to do. The enemy doesn't want that. So when we come here, this is a special time. Be watching and be praying and know your enemy and your weakness lest you come here and fall into temptation. Lies for preachers and teachers, of course, too. These are the times we need to be especially watching and praying. There are certain other seasons of life 
You could think of these on your own, but what about the time of raising young children, the time that I'm in now, and many of you are in right now, and you're finding it draining and exhausting. This is a season in which you especially need to be watchful, spiritually alert, and praying that you not enter into temptation. Many of you are in college or in seminary, and I would tell you that this is a season that you especially need to be watching and praying. Maybe especially if you're studying theology and studying the Bible, that you not neglect your soul as you're feeding your mind with the word of God, that you do not fail to feed your soul and be seeking the Lord. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation, even in seminary, in times of old age. And with all of the difficulties that come with that, Watch and pray, lest you enter not into temptation. What about times of sickness? On and on we could go. Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. So there are special seasons, as this season, as this time that the disciples are in, it's true in our lives as well. There are special seasons where we need to especially be alert and prayerful. But while this is true, we may never in this life safely leave off watching and praying. Why is that? Because of what our brother was praying about or speaking about earlier. Because the world and the flesh and the devil aren't going to leave you alone. The pressures of this world. Your own remaining corruption, the flesh. And of course our enemy, the devil, who prowls like a lion. Our standing in the time of testing will ever depend on this watching and praying and the grace that we receive from God as we pray. Christians, seek not yet repose, we sang. Don't seek yet to rest. The race isn't over yet. The battle isn't over yet. Cast thy dreams of ease away. Thou art in the midst of foes. Watch and pray. So watch. And that means never forget that we have an enemy. An enemy of the soul who, if possible would seek to ruin a justified sinner. I say if possible, but we need to understand we have an enemy and he seeks to devour. He seeks to destroy. He wants to sow division in this church. He wants to get us irritated at each other and at each other and against each other. He wants us to be dull. He wants us to be sluggish. He wants us to walk away critical of the sermon rather than finding what we can benefit from it. Watch and pray. We have an enemy. Don't be ignorant of his devices. That's why we did that whole series on precious remedies against Satan's devices. Paul says, lest we be ignorant of Satan's devices and basically be caught off guard by him and taken advantage by him. Don't be ignorant of his malice. Don't be ignorant of what Satan aims to do to destroy you. So be ever watchful. Be ever watchful for the sin that so easily ensnares you. We all have those sins which so easily trip us up. You need to know yourself. Know what that is. That's part of what this watchfulness is. Know your temptations. Know the things that you are likely to fall into, the ways that you are likely to stumble and pray specifically in light of those sins. Is it your pride or anger or lust or jealousy or covetousness or the use of your tongue? Know the sin that so easily ensnares you. Watch and pray. So I have to ask, are you watching and praying? Are you doing this? Are we doing this? It's so easy to put this off, to be overcome with that sleepiness, spiritual sleepiness, and not to really pray, or even to try to pray at all. Are you watching and praying? And if not, I would tell you from this scripture, you've already lost the battle before it is even fought before it begins. Because to be spiritually dull and to be prayerless or virtually prayerless is without fail to be weak and stumbling in the Christian life and often to be overcome by sin again and again and by temptation 
again and again. It's a simple lesson, but it's here for us in the word of God. Now, I wouldn't lay this down as a law. So don't hear me saying this as a law, but I will say if we are not beginning our days, at least with some prayer, then we are likely not to stand when the ambush comes. Beginning the day and then punctuating our days with prayer, we're setting ourselves up if we're not praying for failure. How long on any given day before you face temptation? Five minutes from your alarm going off, maybe less? We sin every day in thought, word, and deed. So I'm not laying it down as a law, but I would say that we ought to rise. And I know every circumstance is different, everybody's different, but I think it's good and wise to begin the day with prayer, seeking the Lord's help. Knowing ourselves, knowing our danger, watching and praying, and then throughout the day to be praying for God's grace. Because it's not just that it begins early, but how often do we face temptation throughout the day? Over and over and over. So that's the command. Jesus says, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. But then secondly, we have a declaration here, or or an observation, we could say, an observation of our condition, and this serves to underscore the command that he's just given. Here's the observation of Jesus. He says, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, I don't think that Jesus is here speaking of the flesh in the way that Paul speaks of it often, for example, in Romans 8, when Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. I don't think he's speaking about the flesh in that sense, the sinful flesh. There in Romans 8 and elsewhere, he's referring to our sinful flesh that belongs to our corrupt natures, that flesh that those of us who are believers, though we no longer live In that flesh, Paul says that flesh still lives in us, and so there's remaining sin and corruption even in believers. I don't believe that's what Jesus is saying. He seems to be speaking of the flesh in a different way, our physical weakness. Weakness which often gets in the way of our spiritual duties. And a weakness of the flesh which often fails to match our spiritual desires. So Jesus is very gracious in this, I believe, that he acknowledges that his disciples were willing. The spirit indeed is willing. So picture it, right? He comes back and there they are sleeping. He says, you guys not strong enough? One hour to watch? And he declares to them, The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So there's a gracious acknowledgement that they had an eagerness. And it was not just to watch and pray in the present, but they really did want to stand boldly with Christ. I think they all really had that desire to go to death with Christ. And we see later in their life, they did. The spirit was eager. The spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak. The eagerness of the spirit was mixed with a weakness of flesh, which is perfectly illustrated by their heavy eyes and their sleeping at this time when they were to be watching and praying. Now, for over 10 years, I've had this knee injury. It's not really a knee injury as far as the structure of the knee. But for over 10 years, it has hindered me greatly, actually, in wanting to do what I want to do as far as running and exercising, lifting weights, those kinds of things. I've been hindered. Everything else is fine. I'm very willing, very eager to go and maybe set a personal record in a 5K. But I can't because I'm hindered by this weakness in my left knee in particular. I can't do it. I think that's something of what Jesus is saying. There's this real eagerness and desire, a spiritual desire, but there's a weakness that hinders. If you've ever set an alarm clock and you've slept through it, 
That's also something of it. That happened to me this morning. I had three alarms. I was very eager to get up. I needed to. And I slept through all, I turned all three off. I don't even remember it. <laughs> Hence the scruff this morning. So the spirit was willing, the flesh was weak. I could give you so many more examples because you know, you know, don't you? God's made our spirits willing. Praise God. He's given us new hearts. I, I believe that all of you are here and you're willing, you're eager. You want to praise God. You want to get as much as you can from the, the, the preaching and the reading of the word and the singing. The spirit is willing, but haven't you found so often that the flesh is weak? You want to pray. Here it is, the beginning of the year. You're saying, I'm going to pray more earnestly and regularly. The spirit is truly willing. You want to read the word of God, whatever it is. You're eager, you're willing, but you do often find the flesh is weak. So it's just an observation and we need to understand it. Again, part of our wisdom to know our weakness. But notice, notice here that this is not given as an excuse to not be watching and praying, but actually as incentive to all the more be watching and praying. Because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, how much more do we need to be watching and praying lest we enter into temptation? I believe that's what Jesus is getting at here. He knows our frame. The Lord knows our frame. He remembers we're dust. He is merciful. But we need to be aware of this weakness of ours and, and not leave any room for spiritual laziness because of it and saying, well, yeah, you know, I do have a willing spirit, but my flesh is weak. Don't leave any room for your laziness. But hear the other words of Jesus when he says, watch and pray, lest you enter temptation. So there's the disciples in the hour before the hour. We see them failing. We see them sleeping when they ought to be watching and praying. And I say that it's a mirror for us, and we have much to learn from them and from the words of Jesus. But I want us now to end by more briefly looking at our Lord and his triumph in that hour, that hour of prayer before the hour of testing that would come, that hour from which he rises courageously to meet his betrayer and to overcome and to do it for us, for the sake of sinners. So secondly, Jesus at prayer in the garden. And we focused last time on his agony, intense agony that we cannot comprehend. We, we looked at his agony. We looked at his absolute determination, his resolve to submit to the will of the Father, that banner over his life, nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours be done. We focused on those things last time. He was coming to this hour, and he is determined to face it because it's the Father's will. He's determined to drink the cup, the cup of divine wrath, which is ours to drink. And he's determined to do it to its dregs, to drain it completely for us. So we saw last time that what we have here is a window into the inner life of the Son of God. Here at his most critical point in his life, as he's agonizing and he's pouring out his heart to the Father. And there's something here that is too wonderful, really many things, too wonderful and mysterious for us to grasp. And if we could only grasp the mystery of the two natures of Christ, fully God and fully man, and yet joined forever in one person. If we could only grasp that mystery, then we could grasp the mysteries that we see here. But we can't. So we're coming again, and we're observing. And let's just observe this scene again. Let me read beginning at verse 35. He went a little farther and fell on the ground. He fell on the ground. He's prostrating himself. He prayed that if it were possible, the hour might Pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. 
Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed. And he spoke the same words, and when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came the third time, and the implication is there, and we confirm it from the other gospel writers, that he went away and prayed again. And I believe that was the time when we read in Luke that being in agony, he prayed even more fervently, and those, those drops of blood mingled with sweat. And that was probably the time that the angel, I believe, that was the time probably that he was strengthened. So it's the picture, I think, is that we have Jesus in these three times of prayer further and further agonizing and praying. Came the third time, said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. You see how he rises courageously from this trial. Jesus was, if anything, a man of prayer. The Gospels abundantly prove this, and we've seen this again and again. And here in his most critical hour, he's praying earnestly and crying out, to his father. And I want you to observe very briefly a few things. First, the intimacy of his prayer. He addresses God as Abba, Father. That was unheard of among the Jews. Now, we know from Jesus that we have the great privilege of addressing God as our Father, but that is something new. That's our privilege as new covenant believers. But here is Jesus doing something that was unheard of, addressing God as Abba, Father. There's an intimacy. This is the second person of the Trinity addressing the first person of the Trinity. He's saying, my Father, Abba, Father. There's intimacy here. And along with that, there's a complete trust in the Father. So we see that in this prayer. We see the acknowledgement of who God is and what God is as he is saying all things are possible for you. So there's, there's theological weight to what he's saying. He knows, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. All things are possible for you. You're, you're, um, you're all-powerful. You're the almighty God. Notice the fervency of his prayers. Unmatched, surely. Unmatched fervency. And notice it's three times that he's praying. Like when Paul was praying for the thorn to be removed. There was fervency. Three times I pleaded with the Lord. Here's Jesus pleading. And he's falling on his face. And he's praying. And he's profusely sweating, we read in Luke. There's an earnestness in this prayer. Prayer, true prayer is costly. It's draining. We're pouring ourselves out when we really pray. Notice the posture, too, of submission in which he prays, which we should always pray in this posture. So he's coming earnestly, but he's saying, God, Father, I'm submitting all of this to you and to your will. Not my will, but yours be done. That's the posture of prayer. So we have an example. Yes. Meditate on this. Look at this. Consider the prayer life of Christ and what it has to teach us as we are to imitate Christ about the intimacy we can have with the Father, the boldness and access that we have to our Father, the fervency with which we should pray, the theological truths that we should even have that undergird our prayers. God, you can do all things. You know all things. You see all things. We ought to pray like that and to have it all in this posture of submission and saying, your will be done, O God. So there's so much here to learn by example, but there's more. Because as we are looking at Jesus praying and agonizing in the garden, what we're seeing is the outworking of our salvation. This is the Son of God coming to that critical hour, the hour, and submitting to the Father's will and rising 
rising to meet his betrayer. And that's all for us. That's all because of sinners. Remember last time we considered obedience to the point of death was not easy for Jesus just because he's the son of God. This is true agony. And so this was for us. So we are seeing nothing less than the outworking of our salvation as we look at this scene in Gethsemane. It gives us a picture of the gospel. For one, in the disciples and seeing their failure, their sin, their weakness, it it tells us, it, it pictures for us something of our great need as sinners, as fallen creatures. And perhaps we're meant to recall the failure of another in a garden long before this, the first Adam who was tempted and who failed. So we see our need even in this, in the disciples. We need a savior. We need one who would come and take our sins upon his sinless self and drink that cup of God's wrath to the full in our place. But we see the son of God as he's agonizing and praying and rising triumphantly, we see here our only hope. We see our only savior. The only hope of those of you who are not in Christ and trusting in him, you are seeing your only hope in this text. The Lord Jesus Christ, who was obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, so that all who would believe in him would not perish but of everlasting life. So we're seeing him already laying down his life here. He has as good as given his life as a ransom for many here in Gethsemane because he's determined, I'm going to that cross. So in the garden, in the hour before the hour, Jesus had already in essence crushed the serpent's head. In the garden, the second Adam did not fail. He did not succumb to temptation, but he won the victory and he did it for us so that we might have life in him. So we end by beholding our Savior and praising our Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for our only hope. And we thank you for this picture of our Savior. And Lord, there are depths here that we cannot understand. And we ask that you would write these things upon our hearts. That you would stir up our love for Christ. That you would warm our hearts to praise. Lord, help us to know the unknowable love of Christ as we look at a text like this. Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness of sins that we have in Christ. We thank you for the hope and the life that we have in him. Pray that we would learn from this text and that we would be watching and praying lest we enter into temptation and that some here would be drawn to Christ even this morning, drawn to him in faith and in love and find life in him. We pray in his name. Amen.